Okay, the quiz question for today. This week, uh, the UK City of Culture for 2021 was announced. Go on. Coventry. It was Coventry, yes. Um, Not a city I know very much about, even though I used to live near there. Um, one, one sort of felt we didn't have a lot of reasons to go to Coventry. And I think that's what city culture is all about, isn't it? It's to sort of give you more reasons to go and discover how mistaken you've been about Coventry um, for so many years. Um, I think the only thing I did, I only know a couple of things about Coventry, and uh, one of them is coming up next. But the other one is um, that the specials song, The Ghost Town, is about Coventry. Um, there you go, which really tells you all you need to know about Coventry. So anyway, well that was Coventry in the 80s. Coventry in 2021 will be a revelation, I'm sure. Um, but Coventry is known for its cathedral. Um, one of only a couple of post-war cathedrals in Britain. Um, and that picture there is from Coventry Cathedral. Uh, it's a Graham Sutherland tapestry, I believe the biggest tapestry in Britain, it may even be the biggest tapestry in Europe, I'm not sure. It's enormous anyway. Um, and uh, uh, if you go to Coventry Cathedral, it's there um, at the end of the cathedral. And it's called <coughs> Christ in Glory. And as you know, whenever I do a sermon, I always do a little bit of art tuition for you. You know, um, should be Sarah doing this really. But, um, but that's relevant because, and I do like Graham Sutherland, but it, that's relevant because what is Christ doing? He's sitting down. So Christ in glory is sitting down. Now you might say that's because he's on his throne. And he'd be right. Because he's the king of kings. But also he's sitting down, the author of Hebrews tells us, because his work is complete. His work on the cross was a once and for all work. And he was able then to sit down because it didn't have to be done again. And what a contrast the author tells us with the Old Testament, the Old Covenant sacrifices, which had to be offered over and over and over again uh, because they were never truly effective. Christ's sacrifice is effective once and for all. And as a result, Christ is sitting down. Christ is in his glory, sitting, because he doesn't have to stand like the priests. Um, and do the sacrifice, make the sacrifice over and over and over. Um, where we've got to now uh, in Hebrews, um, the, the author's been building up to this over, over a long uh, chunk of writing, um, we've got to a conclusion, a climax, where uh, the author brings uh, lots of ideas that he's already explored together. And you can imagine, you know, if he, was, if he was saying this, he'd be pointing the finger now because he'd be saying, look, I've laid all the groundwork here. I've told you how, um, how Jesus is unique, how he's, a, how he's a new kind of priest. He's a king. He's, you know, he's better than anything that's ever been before. How the whole of the Old Testament has been leading up to Jesus. I've told you all that. I've told you about his work on the cross. And now I'm going to tell you that there is no way you should be going back to the old Jewish way of life and the old Jewish sacrifices. Come on! And, and what we get now is a conclusion where all of that is brought together and the author says, look, look at the contrast. 
Look at the difference. There is no comparison between the old way that you are thinking, perhaps, of going back to, and the way of the new covenant in Christ. There is no comparison. How stupid, how how absolutely foolish you would be to go back to the old covenant. That's what the author is saying. That's what we're going to be looking at uh, today. Um, so, a greater cleansing is the um, is the thrust of it. This is this is so much better than anything that's gone before. Now, you put a slide like that up, and everyone goes, "Oh!" Well, you don't have to go and look at all those verses. However, if you're really keen, um, you know, I'll, there will be a way of me getting that to you. But there's a there's a point here, um, and and I'm not going to go through this verse by verse. But I'm going to uh, talk about the fact that this is a conclusion and, and sort of prove it to you, I think, first of all. Prove to you that everything's been building up to these 18 verses. <clears throat> I'm trying to, or starting to try, to make a bit of a living as a writer now. I've always sort of, for years and years, I promised myself I would do two things when I retired. Um, one was to write, and one was to read more. Um, well, I'm managing, I think, the writing a bit, but I'm not managing the reading very well at the moment. Um, I also quite fancy the idea of running my own business, so put the writing and running my own business together, and um, Rhiannon and I are running a business together where I write and she designs. And so far, so going okay. Um, but I remember being taught in, in secondary school how to write, but when I was taught how to write, it was also how to write an essay. And I remember one teacher, um, and, and he, he didn't really mean it to be taken absolutely seriously, but he was sort of joking. He said, an essay, you say what you're going to say, that's the introduction, then you say it, that's the bulk of the essay, and then the conclusion is saying what you said. And there is some truth in that, um, though there's obviously more to it than that. And this, in a sense, therefore, is the conclusion, because what... The author of the Hebrews is now doing is, is he's saying what he said. He's bringing it all together and, and, and absolutely ramming it home. As I said, that, that the, the Jews that he's writing to would be absolutely stupid to go back to the old way of life when, when this new covenant is just so superior and so better um, to the, uh, the previous. So, um, he's made lots of points, and, and I'm, this is not exhaustive, okay? Um, but he's in, in Hebrews, and, and I've picked where I've put cited previously. I've just said where he's talked about those particular points in the previous two chapters, because in a way, those are also, um, you know, he builds up to eight to nine, um, and makes the argument eight to nine, and then he sort of recaps and strengthens with this contrast. And, Chapter 10. So I've, I've used chapter 9, but you can, you can see this further back in Hebrews as well, particularly the first one. So Christ, the priest and, priest and king. Christ is a new priest, uh, a new kind of priest, a new high priest in the order of Melchizedek, uh, but he's also a king. And we see that in Psalm 110, verse 1, um, which we've already uh, used today, and in Hebrews 8, verse 1. And then again, we get it in Hebrews 10, 12 to 13. But also, this is the Christ, the new, the new priest and king, who brings in a new covenant and a new relationship that Jeremiah talks about, that we 
seen a bit in Hebrews 8, and we see again in 16-17. Why is this new covenant and relationship needed? Because the old um, sacrifices, the old cultic system, the old um, Mosaic law was ineffective um, uh, repairing our relationship with God. They were ineffective, those previous sacrifices. That's all I mentioned, and he tells us again. Um, and therefore we needed the superior achievement of Christ the priest in a greater cleansing. And that um, is uh, alluded to in Psalm 46 to 8. It's also in 9, 11, 15, 14. And again, we get it in this chapter. And then finally, of course, what is he saying? Well, he's saying Christ's death makes the ultimate difference. And that is why you need, uh, you need Christ. Um, Hebrews 10 verse 9 um, says Christ does away the first first covenant in order to establish the second and the second is so much better than the first is what um, he's saying. Uh, so this is a conclusion to everything that's come before and, uh, and, and that's, that's the nature of the conclusion. Now, I want to spend a little bit longer just on the new covenant one because I think it's the one that causes people the most difficulty and certainly over the years it's caused me the most difficulty. So I'm going to have a go at just looking at that one a little bit more. Um, perhaps in a little bit more detail. So this is my attempt okay, uh, to do that. Um, and I think the first thing to say is it could, you could, you, if you read this, if you read this argument that the author's making, and you didn't look at everything that he's saying properly, you could jump to the conclusion that this is God's plan B. It's a sort of oh dear moment where you know God looks down and goes, "Ooh, plan A hasn't worked. We need a plan B." Well, as we know from our series on guidance, God doesn't have plan B. There is no plan B here. This is plan A. This has always been the plan. Um, and I think it's worth just looking at that in a little bit more detail. Uh, it's interesting because plan, this plan A, plan B thing's come up quite a lot recently. Um, Boris Johnson apparently said in the summer, uh, although I find this a little bit um, surprising, well, he did say this, but he, I think perhaps we could take a little bit out of context, but he said, uh, with Brexit, there is no plan B. Because, you know, there was this idea of, you know, um, well, if we don't get a deal, then, then there's no deal. Uh, he was basically saying there will be a deal. Don't worry, there will be a deal. There is no plan B. Um, so, you know, you don't have to worry. It's all under control. Um, Emmanuel Macron, there we go, did you Macron? Uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, the president of France, um, said and I'll say it in English, but it works in French as well, um, there is no plan B, he's talking about climate change, there is no plan B because there is no planet B. It works in French as well. Okay. Um, and, uh, and that is true, isn't it? That is definitely true. We've got to sort climate change because you know, we can't just all hop on a spacecraft and go somewhere else. Well, just like there's no plan B in these cases, there was never any plan B in God's plan. It was plan A all the way along. So let's, let's have a look at that. Um, so, God made a covenant with his people. He made a covenant with Abraham. And that covenant uh, covered the, uh, the Israelites. 
And that was a covenant, a, a promise of a relationship between God and his people. And I'm saying that's the covenant of grace. Because, in fact, the, the, the author of Hebrews goes on to talk about this in the next chapter and talks about these people who, in the Old Testament, lived by faith. So there was a covenant of grace, a relationship between God and his people, which was God's grace and love and comfort and shelter and protection on the one hand, and on uh, the, ha- the part of the people, uh, a response in faith. We, we have to live by faith. That was true for the, for the patriarchs, that was true of the people of the Old Testament, it was supposed to be true for the Israelites, and it's true for us today. And that relies on Jesus. Um, Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 8, And the scripture, forecasting that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. This was always planned. So Jesus' coming was always planned. And so uh, there is that covenant of grace which goes through all history, past, present, future. But... The Israelites were given the Mosaic law. So they were given the law. And they were given the law to help them to live fine. So they knew, what, if you like, what God expected. Uh, but the law had, as we know, it had other purposes as well. It had the purpose of pointing to sin. The author of the Hebrews says that in this chapter. It says about it being the reminder of sin. So, uh, so the law reminded the people of their sin. It also, we're told by the author of the Hebrews, it points to Jesus and Jesus' sacrifice. So uh, at the same time as the people were supposed to be living in faith, they also had the law which pointed to sin, it pointed to Jesus, it pointed obviously to God's holiness and the gap that there was between uh, the Israelites as sinners and God as a holy God. Um, and he also gave them an opportunity to repent and say sorry of their everyday sins. But it was very clear that that was never, that was never the final um, way in which God was going to deal with sin. That there was always something else planned. In Numbers it says about people that because he or she has despised the word of the Lord, their iniquity shall be on them. So it was always the case that that, uh, that those daily sacrifices couldn't be the answer to a people who were in complete rebellion to God. So a new covenant, a new law was always coming. And that's the law that Jeremiah talks about and that the author talks about here. The law that's on our hearts. It's the new covenant, the new relationship. So God always dealt with his people in love and grace and expected a return <coughs> faith. But there was also the old covenant, the old law, um, which was uh, for a, a time, and then that was always going to be replaced by the new covenant in Jesus. So it wasn't a plan B. It was always the plan A. Plan A is the best plan. It's the only plan. And what, what the author is saying to uh, the Israelites is this was always God's plan it was always that uh, that Jesus was coming it was always that Jesus was going to be the real deal and the old law simply pointed to that and foreshadowed it and he makes now the contrast 
between that old law and the new law, which is going to be written on our hearts, which is uh, achieved through Jesus' sacrifice. So, uh, the next thing really is, is the way that he makes this contrast. And again, you could argue that there are more contrasts in the passage than there are, and you can go and have a look um, at, at them yourself. But I'm picking three. So first of all, um, the idea that um, the, the Mosaic law uh, and the sacrifice uh, system is a foreshadowing. Uh, it says it in verse, uh, verse 1. For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come. So the law was a foreshadowing. It was a pointing towards something uh, that was to come. I was trying to think of, um, uh, of an illustration of this. Um, if you do GCSE English liter- uh, literature, and I have taught GCSE li- li- English literature, there was nothing I haven't taught. Um, but anyway, uh, I won't warn around now. Um, but there's almost nothing I haven't taught, but I've, I've taught GCSE English literature. And um, one of the things we used to teach a lot of was, uh, was of mice and men. Oh, I will have a rant. You can't teach of mice and men anymore because it's not English literature, it's American literature. Um, and, uh, and, and so we're not allowed to teach that anymore. We're only allowed to teach um, British literature. Okay? So Scottish is allowed. But uh, we're not allowed to teach, we're not allowed to teach American literature um, for GCSE. Uh, but in uh, My Men, you used to work wonderfully well uh, with the, uh, because it, it's short, it's brilliantly written, and it's got loads of uh, literary devices in that the, the students can, can sort of get their heads around and learn. And one of them is foreshadowing. So, I don't know if you know the story, but there's a, an old guy called Candy who lives on the farm where, all the, uh, where everything's taking place. And Candy has an old dog uh, that smells pretty bad and basically just gets in the way. And, you know, and, and another guy gets really fed up with Candy and he shoots him. And this is a foreshadowing. Sorry, I'm going to give you a, this is a spoiler alert now because I'm going to tell you the end of the Mice and Men. But at the end of the Mice and Men, um, you've got the you've got the two uh, main characters, and of course the one shoots the other. I won't tell you any more than that. Uh, but the shooting of the dog is a foreshadowing of what's coming. And what the author is here saying is that um, the the old sacrifices are a foreshadowing. They are a picture but an imperfect picture of what is to come. Um, think of it like black and white TV in the 60s. It was very frustrating because you knew that um, you knew that sort of colour technology was in some sense available, but it wasn't in the home in the TV. And you had to watch these poor black and white pictures. And now look at our TV. So you want to sense, you know, th- there was nothing wrong with the black and white TV in its own terms, but it was simply, it was, it was, you know, an indication, I suppose, of what might come, and things have got better. But unlike our TVs now, which no doubt will keep evolving and developing, the sacrifice of Christ is the real deal. That's it. It doesn't have to be another one. It is the complete and effective sacrifice, and we now have the real thing. So, it's a foreshadowing, um, and we have that in, in verse 1. The Israelite sacrifices were imperfect and, effect- and ineffective. They didn't do what, what needed to be done. And as I said, in, in Numbers chapter 15, um, you have uh, the acknowledgement right at the, the start of the law that it wasn't there to deal with 
the big picture of, of man's rebellion against God. It could never do that. And, and, uh, and that's clear in Numbers 15. And, and so there was always going to be something else. And it had to be Christ. Because Christ was perfect. Christ was both high priest and king. And his sacrifice therefore could be perfect and effective in a way that the old sacrifices were not. So Christ was always going to come and that was always going to be needed. And we see that in verses 1 to 4, verse 10. And, and, and in a way also what we see is that the Israelite sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over again. And we've got this contrast between the, the uh, Israelite priests who, who were standing these, uh, making these sacrifices time after time after time because they never dealt with the problem properly, never dealt with the people's consciences, never dealt with the, the problem of rebellion, never dealt with the problem of sin properly. Christ, as we see in Graham Sutherland's picture, Christ in glory sitting down because Christ's sacrifice was completed once and is for all time. And we have that in those verses. So, um, Christ's, uh, um, Christ's sacrifice deals with uh, the problem. I'm just going to quote from Amos um, so that we can see uh, the problem. And we'll, we'll come back to Amos uh, later. Um, Amos uh, has God, or uh, tells the, the Israelites that God says this, I hate, I despise your feasts and take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. And you're thinking, well, you know, why is that God gave this system, and yet now he's saying it's not dealing with the problem because of people's hearts are in the wrong place. Well, that was always going to be the case. That was why Jesus was needed. Um, the fact that the Israelites were in, in rebellion against God meant that those, those sacrifices could never deal with that problem. It needed uh, Jesus to come. So whereas God looks upon those sacrifices and, um, and hates them because they're imperfect, they're hypocritical, they don't deal with the issue, he looks upon Jesus in satisfaction because Jesus is the son that he loves and he's perfect. And he, his sacrifice, is acceptable. So what he's saying to the Jews is, why or why would you want to go back to that first um, uh, old system that, that, that you know was always going to be um, replaced, was only ever looking forward to the real thing? Why would you ever want to get back to that? You need to stick with Jesus. So what are the consequences then? Uh, what are the consequences for us of this new covenant? Well, it's again, the author's clear. I mean, he does go on and talk about it more uh, in verse 19 onwards. But even in this bit, he's very, very clear. So in verse 17 and 18, he talks about the fact that we're forgiven. Um, and, uh, and that forgiveness is a forgiveness now for us in the present. In, if we're Christian, but it's also a forgiveness for all time. That's what he says. It's, it's now and it's forever. So we can have confidence that when God looks at us, he forgives us and he will always do that. 
So what does that mean? It means, therefore, that, that as God looks at us, he sees Jesus. He sees perfection. We are perfected for all time. Um, and that, again, is, is present and for eternity. More than that, we're sanctified. What does that mean? That means we're being made ready to go into the sanctuary. Made ready to go into heaven. So we are, we are going to be able to go into heaven and be with God. So we are being sanctified. And finally we have, as a result of that, a new relationship which Jeremiah and then the author of the Hebrews um, so eloquently describes. We have a close a closer relationship, a new relationship with God, um, which again will persist for all time. So these are huge consequences for us as Christians um, that we need to uh, we need to grasp. Let me um, let me quote uh, just one thing to you from um, an author called Robert Rayburn. He says this: the coming of Christ is decisive to the author of Hebrews. Not because it lifts the religious experience of believers to a higher plane than that enjoyed by the saints of the former epoch, but because Christ secured the salvation that all of God's people, past, present and future, grasp by faith in this world and will enjoy in fullness in the next. So Christ secures the salvation for all God's people, past, he's going to talk about some of those people in uh, chapter 11, Present, to the people that he's talking to there. Future, that includes us from when he's writing, but of course the people yet to come. That we can all grasp by faith in this world, so we can uh, experience now and, and lay hold of now, but also will enjoy in fullness in the next. Christ's sacrifice is the perfect sacrifice. It does offer greater cleansing and it offers all those things to us. So, huge contrast he lays out between the old and the new. The new gives these consequences, these wonderful consequences. And therefore there is um, a choice for us uh, and a a challenge. Um, Leanna's getting really fed up with me at the moment. She's um, she's getting fed up with me not having a proper sat-nav in the car. I mean, that's partly the kind of car we buy, but... um, but I try to use my phone and then of course you're trying to balance it and then it sort of falls off and you know it's under the seat and you have to stop and, and look for it. Um, but what a sat-nav does these days, I don't know if you've noticed, it didn't used to, but it does now, it always gives you a choice, doesn't it? It gives you a choice of route. So if you go this way, with the current uh, you know, road conditions, it'll take you an hour and ten minutes. If you go this way, um, it'll take you an hour and eleven minutes. And if you go this way, it'll take you five hours and three minutes. So that's one, the one not to go. Um, but it, it isn't like that, the choice that we have. You know, the, the sat-nav choice is, a, well, you know, this is marginally better than the other. You know, um, this has disadvantages and this has this disadvantages. You know, if we do this one, we feel we're keeping going, so it will be less frustrating, but it will take us slightly longer. Those are the kind of choices the sat-nav gives you. This is a very different choice. This is a choice between death and life, actually. It's a choice between grace and law. Grace, which is God's forgiveness in Jesus, and law attempting to sort the problem out through, uh, through some kind of system, some kind of philosophy, 
um, some kind of law that, that, as the author says, is going to be ultimately ineffective. So it's a choice between those two things. It's a choice between Christ and religion. It's a choice between throwing ourselves on Christ's mercy. Um, it's uh, a choice between that and, and doing things. Religion. Doing things. Systemizing things that we do um, in order to get right with God um, or whatever we believe in. That's, that's a choice. It's not like the sat choice. It's not a, you know, this one's slightly better than the other because. This is a choice between death and life. And that's the choice. The contrast which the author is laying out in front of those Jewish Christians and saying, you know, you have to go this way. You have to go the way of Christ. And so we've got some challenges that come from that. And the first one is the challenge to trust. Because that's hard. Because we will feel bad. We will feel that we're letting God down. And we are. And as a result, we'll want to do things to make it up. We'll want to do things to make ourselves feel better. To make it feel that we're doing a better job than we used to. But what the author of Hebrews is saying is, that's the old way that was never going to be effective. You have to go with the fact that Christ's sacrifice was once and for all. Christ has done it. There's nothing we can do um, to make any difference to that, to add to it. So you just have to trust. That's hard. That's a challenge to trust, I think. There's the challenge to obey, obviously. Um, the, the author quotes Jeremiah and says, the law is now on our hearts. So there is still a law. It's not that external law. It's a law in here. So we do know what to do. And we don't do it to try and make ourselves feel better. And we don't do it to try and make ourselves better with God. But we do it because we want to respond to God in love. And that's why we do it. So that's a big challenge too. Um, to know everything that God has done for us and know that the way that we show our gratitude is in the way that we live our lives. And finally, of course, the challenge to witness. If it is the fact that the other systems, these religions, these philosophies, these systems, if they are ultimately ineffective, then everybody who has not thrown themselves on the mercy of God in Jesus is in severe peril. And then, so there's a challenge for us to, to say to people, these other approaches are ultimately ineffective, they lead to death. And that's a hard challenge too, um, to be able to say that compassionately and winsomely and effectively and persuasively. There are three big challenges there, I think, but they, they come directly out of what we have just um, been looking at. I thought this might bring one of the challenges really clearly to us. I've looked at Amos that, um, the, that I talked about earlier. Um, and I've replaced the... I've, all I've done is replace what we do um, for what the Israelites did. Okay? That's all I've done. Left every other word the same. And maybe as you read that, you begin to realise what the author of the Hebrews was saying to the Israelites. These things are ineffective. 
These things in themselves will not save you. Only Christ can save you. Now, there's nothing necessarily wrong with these. That's not the point. They may be good in themselves and we may want to do them. But if that's what we're doing in order to get ourselves right with God, then God will say, I hate it. I hate it. I hate these things because you are relying on them to save you. And they do not save you. They never did and they never will. And that's the message of Hebrews chapter 10. And that's the contrast that is being drawn for us. These things simply do not work. But we need, we need a complete shift of mentality. We need to throw ourselves on Jesus and we need to respond to Jesus. And the way that, the evidence of that, if you like, is in the last couple of lines. If we're truly relying on Jesus and we're truly believing uh, that he saved us and we want to respond to that, then we'll begin to see the things at the end.